Uh, hello, Mafra friends. Good to be back with you. Uh, working our way through the book of Isaiah, of course. Uh, a great book to read and to deliberate on and to, uh, to take to heart. Uh, a book which speaks very uh, clearly of the sovereignty of God. Uh, and, you know, we need to be reminded of that. Um, not that long ago we had an election. We've got a new government now. Uh, but fundamentally, as Christians, we believe that God is in control. Um, humans come and go with uh, their leadership, but God is in control and he's leading us to a glorious future. And we see something of that today. So let's uh, let's pray and then let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44 and get into it. OK, let's let's pray. Uh, Lord God, our loving Heavenly Father, we join with uh, the saints of all the ages in declaring you to be the great and glorious God, the creator of everything that is, the one who knows the end from the beginning, the one who is described as being the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, you're the one who's drawn close to us. You haven't kept yourself hidden. You have not kept yourself a secret. You've spoken chiefly in your Son. And so we pray that you would speak to us today by your Holy Spirit, reveal wonderful things uh, about Jesus, reveal more of ourselves and, and cause us to turn to you and look only to you for the life that is truly life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, perhaps you've heard the saying, uh, talk is cheap. I should just say that I've written an outline should, it's in your bulletin, so follow it if you if you think that's useful. Uh, I hope it will be. Um, and we're talking about Isaiah chapter 44 from verse 24 onwards today, and we'll read that in just a short time. Uh, but have you heard the saying, talk is cheap? Um, it means put up or shut up. It means have you got the deeds to match your words? Talk is cheap. Uh, you might remember, the, or perhaps you've heard of the great uh, American boxer Muhammad Ali, used to be known as Cassius Clay. He was a man who uh, was obviously a very fine, if that's what you call it, he was an outstandingly good boxer. Um, but he became famous for the poems that he would write before his world championship matches, uh, part of which was he was taunting his opponent, but he would tell them in the poem when a bout's in the match he was going to knock them out. He would predict which round it was that he was going to finish it. Now, he obviously had the ability to be able to pull that off or else it would just been exposed as a stupid stunt. Uh, you can only get away with that if you're pretty good, if you've got the, uh, the deeds to match the, the, the words. Uh, Glenn McGrath was Australia's great cricket fast bowler for a long time, and uh, as his career went on and as he started to take lots and lots of wickets and became a formidable fast bowler, it became his habit to announce in advance of a, an upcoming series which batsman on the op opposite team he would be targeting. Uh, and, and this was a way of getting inside the head of his opponents and intimidating them. And so he would announce who, he, who would, he would have as his bunny, so to speak. But talk is cheap. Uh, anybody who makes big claims, other people are left to judge then. Are they up to it? Have they got what it takes to pull these things off? Now, in Second Kings chapter 17, uh, we're told there what was going on at the time that the prophets were speaking. Remember that the prophets were speaking into the historical situations that have been described for us in the history books. Uh, Israel was saved by God out of uh, slavery in Egypt, brought into the promised land, given a covenant to live by, that if they lived by it, they would securely stay in the land. But God warned them right up front that if they departed from his word, if they went after the gods of the nations, they'd be in trouble. Listen to 2 Kings 17, verses 13 to 15. The Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, including Isaiah, of course, 
saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. So the lure of idol worship, the lure of the custom of the nations around them was overwhelming. Uh, Now, I've said this before and I'll say it again. We as sinful people have hearts that constantly lead us astray. We've got to take these warnings to heart. But we'll never be tempted to do something we don't want to do. When we're tempted to sin, it will always hold out the prospect of satisfaction, of pleasure, of a good outcome. But if we've had revealed to us the right way and we depart from it, we we know that it's not going to work well. But nonetheless, sin has a grip on us because we'll never be tempted to do what we don't want to do. And so the idols of the nations and the customs of the nations must have been attractive. They must have been powerful. And little by little, it it got in the way of God's people going his way. They were attracted to these things, even though he'd warned them. Now, Yahweh's word was despised. We've seen it here, but in Isaiah 55 verse 24, that's exactly what's said. But the people probably mistook God's patience for slackness. And they'd been getting away with disregarding his word for so long. They thought they were pretty good, pretty religious. And they probably wondered, well, does God really care? They mistook his patience for indifference. But he does keep his word, even if it takes a long time to bring it about. Um, I had an example of keeping your word of, 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 a, of a punishment when I was a kid. My dad was a dentist and, um, and we weren't encouraged to eat lots of lollies, but dad was a wise parent and he realised that some lollies were okay at times but always to be followed very closely by a brushing of the teeth. So it became the habit in our house that after Sunday lunch, uh, a box of chocolates would be passed around and we could choose one or two. And then after that, it was off to the bathroom to brush our teeth. Well, one week I discovered the box of chocolates earlier than the Sunday. And I thought no one would notice if I knocked off a couple and distributed the rest around in a way that made it look like they hadn't been disturbed. But mum was attentive and she noticed that the box was slightly down and she challenged me and I had to admit, yep, it was me. And she said, well, you won't get any on Sunday then. That was it. That was the punishment. She just said, you won't get any on Sunday. So Sunday lunch came around and mum hadn't forgotten. And so I had to watch while everybody at the table ate their chocolates and I learnt my lesson. Will Israel learn its lesson? Because you see, God will keep his word, even if it takes a while for it to be fulfilled. Will Israel, will God's people be any different when they're in exile in Babylon? Um, Now, Isaiah wrote these words over 150 years before the time then they're going to be needed. He gave these words to, to God's people in Jerusalem before the Babylonians had taken them captive. But they were fulfilled while the people were in captivity, having been taken from Jerusalem after it was crushed by Babylon over to the city of Babylon. And so they were demoralized. They were defeated. They were exiles. But chapter 40 to 55 of Isaiah speaks of a glorious future where God is going to rescue them in what amounts to a new exodus. 
He's going to do again what he once did when he rescued his people from Egypt. But it's going to be even more wonderful to that than that, to the point where they won't even remember the original Exodus. This new one will be the defining feature of God's salvation and their rescue for him. Well, God knows, Yahweh knows that these people are prone to faithlessness and to worship uh, the idols. And so chapters 44, chapter 40 onwards, where we're at at the moment, there's a constant repetition of the idea that the idols are nothing. We've seen it already several times that the idols are creation of people. And why would you worship something that you've created? Because the greater creates the lesser. Um, now, in contrast to the idols, the gods of the nations, Yahweh stakes his claim on two great and unchallengeable facts. The first is that he's the creator. He created everything. We're told he's incomparable. There's no God like him because he's eternal. He's the everlasting God, the first and the last, the only God, because there can only be one creator. And amongst his creation is his people Israel. He created them. He formed them to be his people. Now, they feel pretty weak and small at the moment. But in comparison with him, the creator God, the nations, including the nation of Babylon that's conquered them, they're just a mere drop in the bucket. And so the first line of attack that God takes in arguing his case is to remind again and again that he alone is the incomparable sole God, the only creator. And so he can tell his people, fear not, which he does several times throughout these chapters we've been looking at they're not to be fearful because he will be with them he'll help them he'll strengthen them he'll uphold them because he's redeemed them and they're his he's called them by name and he says i'm going to gather you from the east and the west i'm going to bring you in you're going to come back to jerusalem so the first line of attack yahweh is incomparable because he alone is the creator but the second the second piece of evidence that he brings up is that he alone knows the future and can tell it and so he challenges the idols in chapter 41 set forth your case tell us what is to happen declare to us the things that are to come well a block of wood which has been carved even though it has a mouth and eyes and ears it can't hear it can't speak it can't tell the future but Yahweh can and he proves it and so in chapter 41, verse 2, he's spoken in advance of one from the east. He's predicted him. And this one from the east is going to take all before him in military conquest. But behind that conquest will be the hand of Yahweh. But what's all this for? Why is Yahweh doing this? These people, demoralized as they are in Babylon, wondering if their God had been defeated by the gods of Babylon, must have been wondering well, is Yahweh's talk cheap? Has he got what it takes to do what he has said through the prophets he will do? Now, there's a lot of talk going on in the passage that we're going to look at today. Is it cheap talk or will it amount to something? So what I want to do is to read through section by section, starting at chapter 44, verse 24, and then we'll think about it and then we'll read the next bit. So I'll read a bit and then I'll preach a bit. Stay with me if you can. I hope you can. So verses 24 to 28 of chapter 44, Yahweh is speaking to his exiled people and he's telling them that they've got a great future but a surprising one. So look what it says. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord. 
who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and make fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant, that is Israel, and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. So Yahweh is presenting himself again as the creator and the only wise God. Um, He can frustrate the wisdom of the magicians, of the religious people of every other nation. Uh, He can make them look like fools because he is the unchallenged only creator. And so we move on into verse 26 the second part of verse 26 and we see now what Yahweh's going to do and so he says of Jerusalem she shall be inhabited now it's in ruins at the moment but Yahweh says she shall be inhabited and of the cities of Judah they shall be built and I will raise up their ruins says Yahweh Israel's God Israel's God verse 27 who says to the deep be dry I will dry up your rivers. That's Exodus language. It's like a reminder that he brought them through the Red Sea once and dried it up so they could walk through on dry land. Well, he's going to do that again. And so there's a promise in this that Jerusalem will be reconstructed from her present ruins. And then we get to verse 28, which says how he'll do it. And this is the surprising bit. So Yahweh says of Cyrus in verse 28 he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose saying of Jerusalem she shall be built and of the temple which is in ruins the house of God which they thought was the the key to their security living in in Jerusalem they thought if God's here in that house nothing will touch us well the house was ruined but this one called Cyrus says she shall be built and the temple your foundation shall be laid now that's one whole sentence verses 24 to 28 one whole sentence is this breathless race through word after word building the case and strengthening as it goes and it climaxes in verse 28 with the revelation this is the one from the east that was spoken of in chapter 41 verse 2 back then he was hinted at and and he we were told that he was going to take all before him in military conquest but now He's not hinted at anymore, he's named. And this is over 150 years before these events happen. Cyrus will be Yahweh's shepherd to to see that Jerusalem is rebuilt, including the temple. That's unexpected. They couldn't have predicted that. They couldn't have expected that. Remember, this is a man that has not yet been born, but more than that, as they'll later discover, he's a pagan idolater. He's not one of them. He's someone who Yahweh has raised up at a particular time from the east. He was the the king of Persia. Now, Persia wasn't even the dominant power yet. They came later on. If you know the book of Daniel, the Persians took over from the Babylonians uh, in, in, uh, in the book of Daniel. But at this stage, Cyrus hasn't been born, and yet Yahweh proves that he can tell the future. He names the king that will take his people back and achieve the exile and its end. Well, on into chapter 45. And here, more speaking, Yahweh speaks now to Cyrus. He speaks to this one who will be born and will do his will. He's Yahweh's unlikely shepherd. 
And so verse 1, thus says Yahweh, the Lord, to his anointed, anointed, the, the, word, the, the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah, to his Messiah, Cyrus. Anointing was what, it was a sign that set prophets and priests and particularly kings aside. It showed that this person was specially chosen by God to do a particular job. And so this Cyrus, the forthcoming king of Persia, Yahweh says he's going to be my anointed to accomplish my will. So thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped. Just as he's promised to grasp Israel's right hand, he's going to take Cyrus. Why is he going to take Cyrus? To subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places, he says to Cyrus. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. Bars of iron. In other words, nothing will be able to stop this man because Yahweh is behind his military prowess. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name, I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. So unlikely as it may seem to his people, Yahweh is raising up a foreign military ruler of unchallengeable power because the power comes from Yahweh. No one will stand in his way as he creates a vast empire. But when the time is right, Cyrus, and you can read about this in Second Chronicles, and you can read about it in the book of Ezra, Cyrus announced to the people in Babylon, it's time for you to go home. I want you to go back to Jerusalem, rebuild the walls and rebuild the ruined temple. Cyrus said, do that. That was his policy. So Yahweh's behind it all. And why is he behind it all? Well, according to um, uh, verse 4, it's for the sake of his servant. Yahweh is acting on behalf of his people, raising up this foreign ruler to do his will for the sake of his people. Remember back in chapter 40, he had said to them that they, he'd repaid their iniquity. They, he'd repaid uh, the, the price of their sin. He's their rescuer. He's their redeemer. And he's going to take them back because their sins have been paid for. And Yahweh is the one who will do it. But by all of this, Cyrus is going to learn something about Yahweh, that there's no other God. And so will the nations. Verse 6, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is no one besides me. And verse 8 speaks of a glorious result where the benefits of his people's salvation are going to be expressed in what sounds like a glorious new creation. 
And that's a theme that will be picked up later in the book of Isaiah and, of course, later in the Bible as well. Well, it looks like God's people in Babylon are having trouble getting their heads around this and they're wondering, is this cheap talk? Is, yeah, is God able to pull this off? And so verses 9 to 13, we've got this incredible image of pots speaking to the potter. And the question that should come to us is, do they know who they're talking to? Do they know who they're taking on? So look at verse 9. Woe to him, says Yahweh, who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labour? Thus says the Lord, this is what Yahweh says, that's what it means, the Holy One of Israel and the one who formed him, the one who formed Israel. Ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, that's Cyrus. Yahweh saying, he's all my work. I have stirred him up in righteousness, verse 13, and I will make his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. So will God's people believe him? Well, have a look at the logic of what he's saying here. Can a pot speak back to the potter? Now, I had a friend who was a very good potter. I used to sometimes watch him while he did it. And he just used to throw the lump of clay on the, the potting wheel and up it would go. But he was practising. And so as soon as he'd made a beautiful looking pot, he'd squash it down again because he couldn't un afford unlimited clay. But up it would go and down it would come. He was just getting better and better and better every time he did it. He was practising the technique. I never once heard the clay say, Oi, I'm good enough to go. I could be a vase. He pushed it down because he wanted to perfect his technique. He was in complete control of the process. Can you imagine a pot speaking back to the potter, saying, I'd rather be a teapot, not a vase? Implausible. It's just stupid. But what about a child in the mother's womb crying out to Dad, what have you done? Or to Mum, with what are you in labour? Because that's the image there. Uh, a baby in the womb crying out to Mum and Dad, do you know what you've done? It's stupid. It can't happen. So having made his point, Yahweh says, I've formed you. Remember, Yahweh's the creator, the only creator. And he says to Israel, I've formed you. He says, ask me of things to come. I can tell you what's going to come. But don't go complaining if I've chosen to use a foreign military ruler to achieve my purposes. God can do as he pleases and his people, he doesn't ask them for an opinion. God has said, I'll save you, I'll take you back, but this is the way I'm going to do it. He's going to use the tides of history to affect his purposes for his people in Jerusalem. By speaking back to Yahweh, which is what they're doing there, they're giving us an illustration of something that we all need to be really careful of. And it's, it's something that our world needs to take heed of as well. 
Because these days it's pretty commonly the case that people mock God. If they believe in him at all, they, they really don't give him the attention or the, the regard or the respect that he deserves, the reverence. Uh, many people live as though God doesn't exist and as though he's just out there to give them what they want at the end of their life, having ignored him throughout their life, they just figure that he'll, he'll make, put out the doormat when, when they get to where they're going. But Gough Whitlam was um, an Australian Prime Minister, a uh, very famous one back in the early 70s, from 1972 to about 70 or 1975. He had three years at the helm of the nation. But he was well known as an extraordinarily intelligent man, a gifted orator, uh, very quick on his feet with a quip. And somebody asked him at his 80th birthday, or on the occasion of his 80th birthday, now that he was getting old in, in years and getting closer to dying, they asked him what he would say should he ever have a meeting with God. And Gough Whitlam's famous reply was, you can be sure of one thing, I shall treat him as an equal. Whew. Now this is a man who was rejected by the Australian people after a mere three years in office. And he's going to treat God as an equal, the eternal one, the creator of everything that is, the one who is the first and the last. A politician with a couple of decades in the house, but only three at the helm, and he's going to tell the God of the universe... Here I am, I'm your equal. Unlikely. Think about it. Until you've created your first universe, what would you say that would impress God? You won't meet God as your equal. You'll meet him as a subject and you'll meet him as your creator, the one who gave you life, on whom your life entirely depends. Pots talking back to potters is as ridiculous as idolaters worshipping the idol that they've made. And so more conversation in verse 14. Yahweh speaks to Jerusalem and he speaks of a future without shame. So chapter 45, verse 14, thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you saying, surely God is in you and there is no other God, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the saviour. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. So this is a statement. The first half of this is Yahweh speaking to his people. And he says, nations who you feared, who you probably think are better than you at the moment, they're one day going to come groveling on their knees in chains because they'll know that I am with you. I'm amongst you. So Egypt, Cush was the upper reaches of the Nile. Uh, what we'd now probably call Sudan or Ethiopia. Uh, but they're going to bring the wealth, their wealth to, to Israel by way of tribute. This is an extraordinary promise, but what it's looking at is way down in the future, God says, you, my people, though you seem small and defeated at the moment, are going to rule the world. And the nations will know that God is with them and that there is no other. 
verses 15 to 17, it's hard to know who's speaking here. It could be Isaiah or it could be the people of God replying to that extraordinary promise. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, a God of Israel, the saviour. God's ways may seem hidden now. That's what's being said. We may not get what God is up to, what God is doing. But he's the only one who knows the future and he controls history, the past and all that there is. Things aren't always as they seem. We may not understand what God is up to, but he is bringing his plans to completion. Now, this is something that Jesus spoke of because he talked about the hiddenness of God's ways or the apparent hiddenness of God's ways. In Matthew chapter 13, he spoke of the kingdom that he was coming to bring, the place where God's rule would be unchallenged in eternity. He said it's like a mustard seed, the smallest of the seeds, but it grows into a a massive great tree. Jesus says the kingdom, Matthew chapter 13, verse 33, is like yeast put in a, a batch of flour, which makes the whole thing rise, a tiny little element of yeast. He says it's like treasure, which is buried in a field, which a man rushes away and sells everything he has so that he can go back and buy that field. It's hidden, and yet it's worth everything he's got. You see, Jesus promised that the meek would inherit the earth one day. God's ways may seem hidden. You may feel insignificant in the world. But if you put your trust in Jesus, if you put your trust in Israel's Messiah, their true king, when you come to know God through Christ, the one he sent, these promises are for you too. And so, as our reading finishes, verses 18 to 25, Yahweh speaks again, but now it's to the whole world. He's spoken to his people. He's spoken to Cyrus. He now speaks to everyone. And he says, turn to me and be saved. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, there's that idea of God being the creator again. He is God. Who formed the earth and made it, he established it. He did not create it empty, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come, draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told of this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a saviour, there is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So Yahweh's speaking to the nations. It's another legal summons. It's like a court case. He says, come on, bring the gods that you've made that you have to carry. Remember, God's the one who carries his people. These people carry their gods. 
What foolishness. But he says, declare your case. Come on, tell us about it. Again, he's challenging anybody to tell the future, to interpret the past. It was him, Yahweh. He's the one who's predicted these things. Again and again we read that he is the Lord and there is no other. So we just need to be reminded of that. And so we've got to put our trust in in the only one that can help. But then he puts out this call, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. So this is an authoritative summons from the creator, the only God, the speaking God. He has revealed himself. He hasn't kept himself hidden. He's spoken the truth. Now, who is this one? Well, he says he's righteous. We've already seen that he's the Holy One of Israel. God's holiness represents a problem because his human creation is anything but holy. Remember back in Isaiah Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah was given a vision of the Holy One of Israel, he said, Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. He felt he was undone. He thought he was going to die because he'd seen the Holy One of Israel. So how can this God who is from eternity and who will live for eternity, the one whose word will return to him, who won't return to him without accomplishing it, how will this God have people live with him for eternity only if he makes them like himself, righteous and holy? How will he do that? Well, it won't be through Cyrus, even though Cyrus is his shepherd and his anointed one. You see, there's going to come a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance to Yahweh. Now, some of those people bowing their knee will do so reluctantly, but they'll have to do it because they'll have to admit there is no other God. And they'll do what they should have done willfully, cheerfully, joyfully. But there'll be others who'll bow the knee gratefully, thankfully. That idea is taken up a couple of times in the New Testament by Paul. Philippians 2 talks about Jesus as being the one who is going to cause every knee to bow and every tongue to confess when he's given the name that is above every name. What's the name that's above every name? Yahweh, the Lord. When Jesus is acknowledged as Lord and King of the universe, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. So when Jesus returns, how can we be safe? How can we be sure that we'll be welcomed into the eternal banquet that's shown to us in Isaiah 25? How can we be sure that we're on the right side of things with Yahweh, the only God, the Holy One? You see, his talk is not cheap. We need to take it to heart. We must not despise it or treat it as a light thing. We need to take him at his word. So how can we be right with him? Verse 22, look at it, underline it, cherish it. Turn to me and be saved. Who? Not just Israel, not just God's people, but all the ends of the earth. Turn to me and be saved. Now those words were extraordinarily significant for Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers. Um, some people would say he was one of the very greatest of preachers in the English language in England in the late 19th century. But he was a genius, brought up um, in a house full of books by pious Christian parents. He could read from the age of three, he began reading the Bible, he began reading Pilgrim's Progress. He read other learned books of, uh, of theology. 
But he had this very strong sense of incompleteness, of being sinful. And he didn't know what he could do with his burden of sin. And so as he tells the story, there came a day when he was 15 years old, weighed down with this burden of sin. And he was on his way on a Sunday morning to church, but there was such a severe snowstorm he couldn't get to his normal church. And so he dropped in at a primitive Methodist chapel. Now, the preacher who was scheduled to be there that day was also kept out by the snow. And so Spurgeon found himself hearing the preaching of a man who hadn't really prepared to preach anything. And he said he was little and simple. Uh, he was a man who, who displayed no particular learning. And yet he preached from this text, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, except in Spurgeon's case, he was using the old uh, English translation, which said, look to me. And so Spurgeon was starting to think this could be the answer. This could be the answer to this deep weight of sin that I feel so constantly. And he was mulling it over, listening as the man poured his heart out, uh, pleading with people to turn to the Lord Jesus, who is Yahweh in the flesh. And then his eyes lit on Spurgeon sitting there and he, Spurgeon said he must have known I was a visitor because there weren't many there and he obviously recognised me as someone unfamiliar. And so the man looked at Spurgeon and said, young man, you look miserable. Have you looked? Have you looked to Jesus? And all of a sudden a penny dropped as the Holy Spirit opened Spurgeon's eyes and his heart to receive the gift of salvation he realised the answer to his deepest need, the deepest need of his heart to be rid of his burden of sin was to look to Yahweh and his provision, to look to Jesus, the one that God had sent. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Saviour. Jesus is Emmanuel, God in the flesh. Later on, we'll read about Jesus being the suffering servant who laid down his life and poured out his blood to ransom people for God. Spurgeon got it that day. Yahweh's talk is powerful talk. He points out right here as this passage finishes that there's two outcomes. There's a glorious future for the offspring of Israel, which includes us because we've come to know Israel's God through Israel's King Jesus. But we also see here that there'll come a time when people won't bow and they'll be ashamed because they were incensed against Yahweh. They maintained their anger and their hostility. So as I'm talking to you now by video, I, I plead with you to do as Spurgeon did. If you are troubled by a burden of sin, if you're not sure that your, your sins have been paid for, those sins that will keep you from eternal fellowship with the Holy One of Israel, then you need to turn to him. Turn to him and be saved. Saved, yes, saved. It's life and death. That's how important it is. You need to be saved. And so the righteous one, this holy God is a saving God, a speaking God and a saving God. And he sent Jesus to save everyone who will come by faith to him when we put our trust in him. So these are great words spoken to God's ancient people which have come down to us, words which God spoke well in advance of them coming to pass. The creator God, the only God, the God who knows the beginning from the end because he is both. He tells what has happened in the past. He predicts what will happen in the future. And he looks ahead to a day when every knee will bow before him, 
when everyone will have to acknowledge there is only one God and there is only one way to be right with that God and that's his son, the true king who he sends, the Lord Jesus. Turn to Jesus and be saved, Mafra Community Church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these are great and glorious words. Please help them to take to help us to take them deeply to heart, to, to wrestle with them, to believe them, to trust in you, not to be like pots that talk back to the potter, uh, not to be look, like unborn children that ask mum and dad, what is it that you're doing? Help us to believe you, to trust you, to obey you, and to find our chief delight in serving you. Father, please write these things on our hearts, we pray, for Jesus' name's sake. Amen.